Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome back to Dr. Raj's Sleep Board Review. Let's talk about narcolepsy and excessive daytime sleepiness. So we're going to talk about what is daytime sleepiness in general? What is narcolepsy? How do we evaluate it, the treatment? And of course, we're going to have some clinical questions. So let's start off with this 24-year-old medical student seeks your advice about an episode that happened over her brief summer vacation. She was staying at she was staying with some friends at a at the beach and fell asleep while sunbathing one afternoon after staying up until 3 a.m. the night before. She was awakened by some shouting and could not move for several seconds. She was aware of her surroundings and did not lose bladder or bowel control during this episode. This has happened once in the past. Her Epworth is eight. So the Epworth score usually goes from zero to 24. There's eight questions. Each one is zero to three. Usually the cutoff is around 12. She is otherwise healthy. She takes no meds and is doing reasonably well. Which of the following do you recommend for this patient? What do you think, Anakit? Should we evaluate this patient for narcolepsy, refer to a psychiatrist, get some reassurance in here, or maybe we should evaluate this patient for seizures? I think that's, I think I would choose reassurance because I think for evaluation for narcolepsy, like this, uh, she's only had one episode of sleep paralysis or maybe two episodes of sleep paralysis. Catapexy is one of those things where you need to like evaluate after, but I don't think sleep paralysis is. So I think I would say reassurance. Sure. You know, the answer is reassurance. I, I really do appreciate you participating in your thought process. For me, the big thing is what is the most important complaint symptom of narcolepsy is excessive daytime sleepiness. And this Epworth does not indicate excessive daytime sleepiness. Sleep paralysis is definitely part of what we think with narcolepsy, but I'm sure many people, including me and you, Anakid, we've had sleep paralysis before. But this is a reassurance. So when we talk about sleep paralysis, I mean, is it really bad that we're paralyzed in REM sleep? The answer is no, it's actually a protective mechanism so we don't reenact our dreams. So there's kind of a balance between sleep paralysis and something called REM movement disorder. So sleep paralysis protects us, you know, 
And But in REM movement disorder, these are going to be individuals who are not paralyzed in REM sleep and they definitely could reenact their scary dreams that could hurt themselves and hurt others. So sleep paralysis can be as simple as, hey, are you having sleep paralysis when you're falling asleep? We call that hypnagogic sleep paralysis or if they're waking up and that's going to be hypnopompnic. So that's one way to characterize them. Another way is like, hey, was it isolated versus recurrent? You know, and I'm not really too concerned when someone has an isolated episode of sleep paralysis. We see that with people who are sleep deprived. That's why that was a medical student in that vignette. Uh, people who are jet lagged because depending upon how many time zones you're crossed, your REM sleep can be all over the place. Alcohol can give you multiple awakenings the second part of the night. And GERDs can give you a lot of awakenings. So you could have isolated episodes. Recurrency paralysis in the right context needs to be worked up. Think about obstructive sleep apnea with those multiple awakenings. And of course, narcolepsy and someone who has excessive daytime sleepiness. Many people who have sleep paralysis will kind of tell me that not only are they paralyzed, they could see a shadowy figure in the room. It's scary. And why are they seeing these scary figures? Why are they seeing aliens in the 1980s? is because your, your mind wants to wake your body up. There's that disconnect that your mind is awake, but your body is stuck in REM sleep. You're still paralyzed. So they kind of want to wake you up. And, you know, many people have talked about shadowy figures and monsters. And they also say that they can't breathe. They almost complain about someone like sitting on their chest. And why do people have that feeling of unable to breathe? Well, you're stuck in REM sleep. And in REM sleep, you get obstructive sleep apnea the most. Your breathing becomes shallow. So all these things occur, and it gives you that sensation if you can't breathe. And there's actually a famous painting right here. It's called The Incubus, where it's going to be that feeling of that demon like sitting on your chest. So that's kind of like the theory behind people who've had these scary episodes. So with that being said, what's the broader thing? Excessive daytime sleepiness. That's what we need to think about. And that's really going to be the inability to consistently achieve and sustain wakefulness and alertness to accomplish the tasks of daily living. So how does they manifest itself when you do a question? It's going to be frequent napping, you know, sleep attacks, you know, when you folks are in a lecture and it's back in college and you're doing the, the head bob. So you can have these sleep attacks. You can have micro sleep where you actually have a sleep attack and you actually dreamt. It's scary. Or get up automatic behavior where when you fell asleep, you're writing notes and next thing you know, you fell asleep, but your hand keeps on writing. So, you know, it's ironic. Uh, one of my fellows asked me before the lecture, well, how long is a nap? Nap should be around 30 minutes tops because, you know, you only want to wake up in the lighter stages of sleep. And if you really just sleep, you know what I mean? like going to 60 minutes or beyond, you may end up in the deeper stages of sleep. Who knows? You may even go to REM sleep. And it's easier to wake up from these lighter stages. And of course, napping should be individuals who are sleep deprived. Napping will benefit individuals who are sleep deprived. Not really recommended if you have insomnia, it could just make the insomnia worse. So what are some generalized causes when we talk about excessive daytime sleepiness? The most common cause is always gonna be insufficient sleep, which is why it's so important to get that sleep journal, to get that sleep log, to do actigraphy, to roll that out. We'll spend a lot of time talking about narcolepsy. A very hot topic in general is something called idiopathic hypersomnia. And just to let you, uh, just to mention is that there are new 
uh, diagnostic criteria from the ICSD-3 is what we're using, the International Classifications of Sleep Disorders. In the olden days, we used to say that there was idiopathic hypersomnia with long sleep duration, meaning you're sleeping more than 10 hours and those without, but now we don't use that distinction anymore. There are recurrent hypersomnias out there. One of them I wanted to mention is something called Klein-Levine syndrome, which is a recurrent cyclic hypersomnia. These are individuals who are sleeping, oh boy, I mean, I'm like 18, 20 hours a day. And even when they're awake, they're kind of like a zombie. And they, if you have Klein-Levin syndrome, you have at least two episodes of the successive sleepiness. They usually last around two days up to five weeks, you know, with a mean uh, duration of around two weeks, 13 days. They got to reoccur. They usually reoccur once every 18 months. And, you know, it usually resolves on its own. Usually the whole syndrome lasts around 15 years. There are many triggers for it. Infection, alcohol, stress, head trauma, sleep deprivation. And the treatment is with things like lithium, even though we don't have robust trials about this, or a macrolide like clarithromycin. And why do we use a macrolide? Supposedly it inhibits GABA. Not really a lot of data behind it. There are menstrual-associated recurrent cyclic hypersomnias, not very common. And of course, you think about hypersomnias due to a medical disorder or hypersomnias due to a substance. But let's focus on the highest yield, which is what is narcolepsy? Narcolepsy is a chronic neurological uh, disorder where there is a dysregulation of the sleep and wake cycles. People with narcolepsy are not sleeping all the time. They unfortunately have poor sleep at night and they are sleeping inappropriately during times during the day. And of course, the big thing that gives you all the manifestations of narcolepsy is that inappropriate REM sleep. So what causes narcolepsy? Well, the game changer is understanding that it's about low levels of orexin and hypocretin. Once again, that's an alerting neurotransmitter and having low levels seems to be the main problem. What causes that? Well, you have secondary narcolepsy that occurs from tumors and strokes, not very common. There are many uh, syndromes out there that can be associated with it, like Prader-Willi syndrome, Newman-Pick syndrome. There uh, could be some genetics, and we do know some of the genes associated with narcolepsy. And autoimmune is one of the strongest uh, etiologies that we're thinking about right now through T lymphocytes when we talk about the autoimmune component of narcolepsy. And people who may have had strep throat may be predisposed. In the olden days, there was a vaccine for the H1N1 vaccine that uh, triggered antibodies against uh, orexin and hypocretin. Sometimes it happens after flu season. And of course, there are a lot of sporadic cases also. Symptoms of narcolepsy are to put into three broad categories, everyone. Excessive daytime sleepiness. This is the most debilitating. This is why patients see a sleep doctor. Disturbed sleep at night and the accessory symptoms of narcolepsy. And the big three are always going to be cataplexy, you know, which is going to be when you have this loss of muscle tone. It doesn't have to be your head flopping into a bowl of cereal. You know what I mean? It could be partial cataplexy where you have weakness in the arm. In kids, they could have cataplectic facies where it could be drooping of the lip, blurring of the vision, sleep paralysis, and of course, uh, visual hallucinations as you're falling asleep. These are all called the accessory symptoms. And this is important because when we treat narcolepsy, I'm treating these main three things, excessive daytime sleepiness, disturbed sleep, and the accessory symptoms, really focusing on the cataplexy. There is this 
pentad of things we just mentioned. And of course, not all patients with narcolepsy will have this at the same time. Narcolepsy, you know, definitely can occur when you're a pediatric patient. It's often underdiagnosed. It's misdiagnosed. It's very frustrating for patients who do have narcolepsy to get the diagnosis. And even after they get the correct diagnosis, they have many challenges too. But only around 10 or 15% of individuals will, with narcolepsy will, will present with the entire pentad at one time. Many of the symptoms could happen later in the course. I mentioned about children already. It's always, it, you know, it, it stings when you know that many children are misdiagnosed as being lazy, as having ADHD, as having depression. So it's definitely about raising awareness. And these are going to be some of the diagnoses that I just mentioned of these kids being confused about, including defiant behavior. So how do we evaluate and diagnose narcolepsy? Well, number one is sleep history. Of course, you want to get a sleep log or diary with possibly actigraphy. You want to use subjective tests of sleepiness. The classic is the Epworth, but there are other ones out there like the Stanford or Karolinska scales. You are going to be using a PSG to exclude diseases like OSA, and this is going to be combined with an MSLT. And we'll use data from the PSG and MSLT together, MSLT being a multiple sleep latency test, which is going to give you the opportunity to have five napping studies. And the key things we look at is having a mean sleep onset latency of less than eight minutes when we average all the naps together and having at least two sleep onset REM periods, including the PSG the night before. And the main reason we have PSG the night before is to rule out things that can cause sleepiness like obstructive sleep apnea. And we also use the SOREM from the PSG on top of the MSLT. We do like to use a drug screen to make sure we're not missing anything. We do stop uh, medications, including stimulants, two weeks beforehand, which may not make the patient happy. We stop antidepressants that can suppress REM sleep almost a month beforehand. If it's safe, we talk to the psychiatrist. And MWT is not for the diagnosis of narcolepsy, but in any type of excessive daytime sleepiness, it's more of a objective test to help out to see if they can stay awake when they're on their treatment for whatever their excessive daytime sleepiness is. MSLT has lots of limitations. It's not validated in kids less than six years of age. Uh, and that makes sense because kids really need to sleep a lot more than adults. So, I mean, if a kid just does the routine thing, MSLT protocol as adults, they may just be sleep deprived to begin with. MSLTs are only validated between the hours of from the, the normal waking up in the morning to the afternoon, doing an MSLT outside of the Validated studies uh, has not been proven. Therefore, it's hard to do an MSLT when someone has circadian rhythm disorders. MSLT is very sensitive to sleep deprivation, meaning that me or anyone listening could have a positive MSLT. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, you do want to get at least six hours of sleep the night before you do an MSLT. So when we do a narcolepsy evaluation, um, definitely want to get a good clinical history. In the olden days, we had a history of narcolepsy and they mentioned cataplexy. You used to be able to make the diagnosis. There's a big change in the guidelines that you just can't diagnose based upon a history of cataplexy itself. New AASM guidelines suggest, you know, doing the PSG uh, and an SL MSLT to confirm the diagnosis, regardless if they give you a history of cataplexy. And also type 1 narcolepsy can be diagnosed by doing a lumbar puncture looking at a low hypocretin level less than 110. 
So with that being said, you know, I, I can tell you that um, we don't commonly, at least in adults, do the lumbar puncture or checking for a hypocretin level. You know, this is going to be really the uh, the test if someone for the diagnosis of type 1 narcolepsy, they're the ones that are going to have the low hypocretin levels. And the level is less than 110 or because there's different units throughout the world, uh, less than one third the mean normal control is the other way we look at it. You know, I mentioned about genetics, and we did discover the gene associated with narcolepsy, the HLA DQB1-0602. This is not really used in the diagnosis of narcolepsy. You know, it's very helpful because many people will have this gene, whether you're type 2 or idiopathic hypersomnia or type 1. But you can use it for screening before doing a lumbar puncture for type 1 because if they don't have the gene, chances are the 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 low level of hypocretin will not be seen. And like I mentioned, autoimmune is a huge part of the etiology of narcolepsy right now. It's T cell mediated. Usually what starts this process is some kind of uh, trigger, which is not well defined. So let's do this one. Anakit, who do you want to pick for this one? You did a bunch already. Who's who's listening? Defong. Defong, which one of the following statements concerning the MSLT is true? A, the mean sleep latency discriminates normal individuals from those with abnormal sleepiness. B, a mean sleep latency of greater than 10 minutes is considered normal. C, its utility in the diagnosis of narcolepsy is mainly based upon the presence of sleep onset REM periods. Or D, it is indicated to help predict a sleepy individual's ability to safely drive a motor vehicle. What do you think, Tafong? B, greater than 10 minutes. Sure. So the answer is C. So remember that A, mean, a mean sleep latency does not discriminate those who have abnormal sleepness from me and you because, you know, it, it, it's not specific for narcolepsy. Anyone who's sleepy could have a positive MSLT. A mean sleep latency, you know, when you say greater than 10 minutes is considered normal, that is going to be true. You know what I mean? But what is going to be when it's abnormal is going to be less than eight minutes. The utility in narcolepsy, its main utility is going to be what? Is looking at these sleep onset REM periods, looking to have at least two of those, you know? And when you say that greater than 10, it's not saying it's normal. You shouldn't be sleeping at all during these naps. You know what I mean? If you really slept and had refreshing, good quality and quantity sleep the night before, you really shouldn't be sleeping at all during these naps, you know? And D... It's indicated to help predict a sleepy individual's ability to drive motor vehicle safety. That's completely false. It's, you know, I think they were trying to hint at this as talking about an MWT, but no test can predict anyone's safety to drive a motor vehicle. So answer here is going to be C. So I put this here to kind of summarize, you know what I mean? The three main things we consider for a, a central cause of hypersomnia, type 1 narcolepsy and type 2. Type 1 is narcolepsy with cataplexy, type 2 is without, and IH is idiopathic hypersomnia. All of them need to have excessive daytime sleepiness to consider these. Cataplexy is only seen in type 1 narcolepsy, but regardless, you still, when we talk about MSLT, you still need to perform an MSLT or you could do a lumbar puncture. MSLT is definitely required for type 2 narcolepsy, and usually done for idiopathic hypersomnia, though there's new diagnostic criteria. Mean sleep latency throughout uh, type 1 or type 2 narcolepsy or IH is going to be less than 8 minutes. You need to have two sleep onset REM periods in type 1, two in type 2, 
zero to one in idiopathic hypersomnia. If you don't want to use an MSLT to make the diagnosis in type one narcolepsy, you could do a lumbar puncture. In type two, there's no options. You have to do an MSLT. In idiopathic hypersomnia, we don't commonly do this, but there's a 24-hour PSG looking for some to sleep at least 660 minutes, or you could do it activity for a week, sleeping at least 11 hours per night and still, 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 still sleeping sleepy during the day, despite having 11 hours of sleep. If you do uh, the CFF, CSF, if it's measured for hypocretin, we already talked about the cutoffs, which is going to be lower than 110 in type 1 narcolepsy. And the last is going to be just summarizing what I just previously talked about. On the bottom pearl down here, the genetic studies I said can be seen both the HLA DQB10602 in patients with type 1, type 2, and idiopathic hypersomnia. It has very limited role in diagnostic testing, but if someone has uh, is negative for this gene, I probably would not do an LP looking for type 1 narcolepsy. So let's talk about treatment. So Defong, you want to do one more for me? Yeah. Okay. 24-year-old woman presents with several years of excessive daytime sleepiness associated with bilateral lower extremity weakness precipitated by laughter. Her typical bedtime is 10.30 p.m. with a subjective total sleep time of eight hours on most nights. She has no medical problems and takes no meds. Following a relatively normal overnight PSG, an MSLT demonstrates a mean sleep latency of only three minutes with three sleep onset REM periods out of four naps supporting the diagnosis of narcolepsy. They gave her modafinil 200 milligrams each morning, and later they increased that to 400 milligrams at top dose each morning. So she's on the max dose of modafinil. After four weeks of therapy, she continues to have significant residual daytime sleepiness, as well as cataplexy. Which of the following could you recommend to better treat this patient's symptoms of the excessive daytime sleepiness and cataplexy? Would you A, Defong, increase modafinil from once a day to twice a day, making it 800 milligrams? Would you add a little uh, Ritalin or Adderall? Would you add a medication called sodium oxabate? Or uh, would you add the sustained release Ritalin or Adderall? What are you feeling, Defong? I'm feeling... B, but I think C, uh, the sodium oxalate um, is for kind of difficult. Wait, does she have cataplexy? Sorry, I didn't see the stent. It's all right. She has cataplexy right there. You know, it's okay. 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 Yeah. So I would go with uh, C for this one because she has cataplexy. Okay. You know? Great job, Defong. I'm super proud of you, buddy. So when we talk about all these stimulants, Defong, do any of these stimulants treat cataplexy? The answer is what? No. No. So, hey, good test taking skills right there. So the answer is going to be C. And let's talk about these medications, right? So, of course, before I become just a drug pusher, it's all about lifestyle modification, set bedtime, set wake time, getting sleep, strategic napping. But if we talk about excessive daytime sleepiness, modafinil and armodafinil are kind of in the same family. They're awareness promoters. They work on dopamine. You want to be careful about Stevens-Johnson syndrome with these patients. So it's even though it's very rare, if you're a female, be careful of estrogen birth control. It makes the estrogen not work as well. When you first start them, it causes headaches and GI upset. We slowly titrate up the drug. Provisual is twice daily and new visual is once daily. More traditional medications are going to be the stimulants. Dextroamphetamine is more like the Adderalls. Uh, Methylphenidate is more like the Ritalins. They both work by uh, preventing the reuptake of things like dopamine and norepinephrine or will cause more release of. 
side effects. Of course, you're about losing weight. You worry about irritability. You worry about tachycardia. You worry about high blood pressure. And we always want to monitor these medications. When we talk about the cataplexy itself, you want to suppress REM. You want to suppress REM. How do we do that? Traditionally, a lot of these antidepressants. And of course, I mentioned earlier, MAOIs love to suppress REM the most, but the side effects, the side effects, we can't tolerate it. So we use a lot of SSRIs and SNRIs to do that. Then, of course, the right answer here was something called a oxibate. There are two oxibates on the market now. One is called the Zyrim, which is a classic one that's been around for a while. The other one is called Zywave that we'll talk about shortly. These medications are um, going to be uh, from the metabolite of uh, sodium oxybate, which is something called gamma hydroxybutyrate, which unfortunately was part of something called the date rape drug. And many stupid people did stupid things with it. But let me talk about how does that work in one second. Uh, for my sleep fellows listening today, this medication called Pitocilisant, I hate these words, is uh, it's going to be a uh, histamine uh, agonist. And remember, histamine is an alerting neurotransmitter, and it actually got FDA approval to treat cataplexy when we talk about narcolepsy patients. So Zyrem, how does uh, knocking you out make you be more awake? Well, the thought process behind it is, is that it works on the, uh, the GABA B receptor. And what happens is that people with narcolepsy, they don't sleep throughout the night. They have multiple awakenings. So what does it do is that it prevents the release of things like norepinephrine and dopamine uh, at nighttime. It stores it up. And then during the daytime, because the drug just wears off, it gets this robust release of things like norepinephrine and dopamine that makes you awake during the day. This medication is not for everyone. Be careful if you have depression. Sodium oxybate has lots and lots and lots of salt with it. Be careful if you have any type of fluid overload state like heart failure. You have to take it twice a night. It's a, very, it's a drug that needs to be chosen wisely in the correct patients. But it treats definitely the cataplexy as well as the excessive daytime sleepiness. And you slowly titrate up the medication. For Zyrum, the top dose is 9 grams. We usually give it in two doses, uh, 4.5 grams and 4.5 grams. So what's new is this new drug called Zywave, which is low sodium oxybate. So we call it the calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium oxybate. Does the exact same thing, exact same dosing, but less sodium. There's another medication that goes by the brand name Sinosi, Sorifemvetol, which is FDA approved. It's a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor. It's a stimulant that you could use for alertness. We mentioned about the histamine agonist, which got FDA approval for both the excessive daytime sleepiness and the cataplexy. The great thing about it, it's not a controlled substance. And this is going to be the brand name Sinosi, got FDA approval in 2019, and it's for alertness. It also got FDA approval for people with excessive daytime sleepiness who have obstructive sleep apnea after treating the OSA carefully. This is the histamine agonist, brand name Wakex. Great thing about it is, is that it is a, not a controlled substance, and it also got FDA approval for cataplexy. Here is a summary of the medications, and I know I, I only have a limited time left, for narcolepsy. And remember that modafinil, definitely all the medications here, modafinil, armodafinil, sinosi, the, the methylphenidates, and amphetamines, 
the histamine agonist, the oxybates, all this will treat the excessive sleepiness and with the exception of the SNRIs, it treats the cataplexy. What else treats cataplexy? The histamine agonist and the oxybates. So it's a nice little chart for everyone. These are the only three that treats the cataplexy. And then for idiopathic hypersomnia, there's only one FDA approved medication for idiopathic hypersomnia, go figure. It's uh, the oxybate known as uh, the Zive Wave, which is why it's so important to make the right diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia. It is scary to give this medication to individuals where you don't have a confirmed, confident diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia. We do use a lot of stimulants for idiopathic hypersomnia, but the only thing FDA approved is the oxybate known as Zywave. Let's do some practice questions, then we'll call the day. Um, Defong, do you want to do one more or do you want to ask someone else? Let's go with Drew. Hey, Drew, are you there? Hey, what's up? Okay. Hey, Drew. Um, oh, first off, congratulations. 23-year-old man is having difficulty waking in the morning and staying awake at work despite getting eight to nine hours of sleep at night. He recently graduated from college and despite uh, having been employed for only three months, has already been written up twice for napping at his desk. He reports having required more sleep than most of his friends as a child. In college, he was able to function without difficulty because he never scheduled early morning or late evening classes. And so was able to get between 10 to 11 hours of sleep per night consistently. He has had two episodes of sleep paralysis in the past, but has denies symptoms of cataplexy. His EPRA score is 12 out of 24. He consumes 32 ounces of caffeinated coffee per day. PSG shows a normal sleep architecture with a total sleep time of 8.5 hours, a sleep efficiency of 92%, sleep latency of seven minutes, a REM latency of 30 minutes, results of a following day multiple sleep latency tests are shown and here is the mslt it looks like they did five naps and it looks like the sleep latency is the first nap eight minutes second nap five minutes third nap eight minutes fourth nap two fifth nap three so it's definitely later than a mean sleep latency of eight and had one sleep onset rem period which of the following is the most likely diagnosis, Drew, and take your time, is it narcolepsy, Klein-Levin, idiopathic hypersomnia, or is this patient a long sleeper? Uh, okay, so sleepiness scales 12, <clears throat> which is significant. Sleep latency mean is 16, 18, 21, 26, 20, it's 5? Yeah, so it's less, less than, than 8. So it's definitely less than yeah. 8, right? There's no question. Uh, he only has one... He only has one sleep onset REM, so I don't know if that meets narcolepsy criteria. He doesn't have cataplexy. I was going to choose long sleeper because I feel like when he didn't, wasn't um, restricted, he felt well rested after 10 or 11 hours, but I don't understand how to incorporate those short latency. You know, hey, Drew, great job, buddy. You know, I think, let me just walk through this together. This is not Klein-Levin syndrome. It's not cyclic in nature. It didn't have the other classic findings of the uh, hyperphagia and other things we talked about. You know, I like what you said, this isn't narcolepsy, number one, based upon the results of the MSLT. There was no cataplexy. This is not type 2 narcolepsy based on the SORAMs. You know, this really goes to, is it going to be idiopathic hypersomnia or is it a long sleeper? And I think many people would have gravitated towards C because it's, you know, one sleep REM, onset REM period. But 
The right answer is D. And why is this a long sleeper is because what did I say, Drew? People with idiopathic hypersomnia, even if they sleep 11 hours, they're still what? Sleepy. Sleepy. He, when he was able to sleep longer, like in the history, he felt what? Better. Not sleepy. Exactly. So I, I got to tell you that, you know, what are you, Drew? That's the big question. Are you a short sleeper? Are you a long sleeper? It's hard to tell. There are definitely these, these extreme ends, but great job on here. Awesome job. Thanks. One, can we, do you want to finish narcolepsy? Can we just finish narcolepsy? Sound good? I'm down for another question. Go for it. All right. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. We have a 30-year-old dude presents with long-standing symptoms of excessive daytime sleepiness, Epworth of 17, that date back to adolescence. He sleeps 11 to 12 hours based on a seven-day actigraphy without improvement in his symptoms. His typical bedtime is 9 p.m. with an awakening time of 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., during the day, he notes frequent, prolonged, unrefreshing naps. He denies muscle weakness, association with emotion, snorings, or witness apneas, restless leg syndrome, or medication use, or any history of head trauma. He complains of sleep drunkenness in the morning when he wakes up. His physical exam is normal. So we did a sleep study, which is going to be shown in a second, and an MSLT. So unrefreshing naps, denies muscle weaknesses associated with emotions, no snoring, no witness apneas, no restless leg, no medication use, no head trauma. Here we go. So the PSG data, the total sleep time is 550 minutes, sleep efficiency of 95%, sleep latency of one minute, REM latency of 110, the sleep stages are N1 is 15%, N2 is 55%, N3 is 12%, REM is 18%, the AHI is one event per hour. PLM index is 3.2, which is not significant. His lowest stat is 93. So they do an MSLT the next day. They did five naps. Looks like there was one sleep, uh, onset, uh, sleep onset REM period on nap two. The mean sleep latency is 8.6 minutes. The urine tox is negative. And the and the they did actigraphy over here, and the actigraphy shows eleven to twelve hours of sleep per night. And this is seven days. Wow. Based on his clinical history and objective testing, which of the following statements concerning this patient's disorder is correct? And this will be the last question because I think I need you to go see patients. <laughs> and then we'll pick up we'll finish narcolepsy next time. Is it A, uh, Drew, is it the mean sleep latency on MSLT is typically greater than that observed in patients with narcolepsy, whatever the diagnosis is here? B, a family history of excessive daytime sleepiness is uncommon. C, spontaneous resolution of symptoms is commonly observed. Or D, the diagnosis may be confirmed, whatever it is, on an MWT. So what do you feel? And we can go back to the vignette while we're talking. I think it is, I don't know the right vocabulary. Is it just like idiopathic insomnia? Because you have REM on both of those things, but the mean sleep latency is greater than eight. And you still have persistent sleepiness with a significant EPS. Yeah, you know, I, I think, Drew, you're, you're trying to like convince me to give you like a sleep fellowship or something because <laughs> that's correct. It's idiopathic hypersomnia. That's the first thing. How do you know this? 
I put them on the new criteria. Seven it doesn't meet the narcolepsy sleeping. criteria, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fitting that 11 to 12 hours per sleep per night. The MSLT criteria, there's only one sleep onset REM period. So all these things are going to say it's idiopathic hypersomnia. So which statement is correct about idiopathic hypersomnia, here? Which one are you gravitating towards? I was thinking A. I assume it's... I assume there's family history. I don't think it will resolve. And I, I think we've already, yeah, I'm going to go with A. Yeah. And a for dog. 100 percent correct. A is the right answer. So remember, MWT is not for diagnosis, right? It's more an objective test that we use on top of other things to try to convince ourselves that people are safe to fly planes and drive, which is scary. IH is a lifelong disorder like narcolepsy. You know what I mean? I'm sure there's one or two cases that it went away, but it's not commonly observed. You know, there is a family history of excessive daytime sleepiness. You know, uh, it, the, the family history of excessive daytime sleepiness is uncommon in the sense that it's not like narcolepsy where we have a gene that's associated with it, you know? So when we talk about the mean sleep latency, if I were to compare in general a narcoleptic patient versus IH, they both will be below a mean sleep latency of eight, but usually my narcoleptic patients will have a mean sleep latency down in the minutes or two minutes, while maybe someone with IH maybe a little bit closer to the six, seven, eights. So okay. you know, A is definitely gonna be the correct answer. Outstanding. And with that being said, I know I went over a little bit. We're gonna finish off circadian rhythm. We're gonna talk about parasomnias, which is really, really fun. And a little bit about restless leg syndrome. We have more than enough time to do this, and we'll finish off narcolepsy. I just have a question about this one. Yeah, if you yeah actually sure. Go, go back ahead. To the, if you go back to, yeah, so his mean sleep latency was 8.6, right? So doesn't that fall outside the criteria for IH? Correct, except I had to put bullet point number three or the bottom bullet point, which is the seven-day actigraphy. So remember that the new criteria we diagnosed idiopathic hypersomnia is going to be the 24-hour PSG, which we don't commonly do because we want to get at least at 11 hours of sleep and still being unrefreshed. Or they could do the seven days of actigraphy. So you're right. If I didn't give you these seven days of actigraphy, then it would be hard to call it the diagnosis of IH. And now we're standardizing things with the ICSD3 criteria. Before, you know, I mean, we would have these long sleepers and short sleepers. We may not have been as stringent about having the min sleep latency less than eight minutes, but that was a really good thing to point out was the point six. And if I didn't put the seven days of actigraphy, then it would be hard to convince you this was IH. Okay, thanks. Helpful, Dr. D. Thank you, Defong. I really appreciate it, bud. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.